Amen. Thank you, Tony. So our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12. Uh, not Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 12. I mean, we got the wrong... Sorry, I'm just looking in your in your worship folder in the insert. The reference is wrong, but the but the uh, uh, the verses are right. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Let's go there. How about that? Okay, that's what I prepared. So we should probably we should probably do that. Uh, beginning in verse 28 and reading to verse 34. It is a familiar. It'll be familiar for some of you if you've been in the church for a while. It's a pretty standard passage. Uh, some have said one of the most important passages. Feels like every passage is the most important passage, though, but this is truly one of the most important marks. So let's read together, beginning in verse 28. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He has entered into Jerusalem, and then during the week in between his entry on Palm Sunday and his crucifixion and death the following weekend, there were a great number of things that happened. One of those is that he he battled significantly with the religious leaders there, not physically, but uh, through ideas, and this is one such instance So let's read, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he had answered them well, he asked, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. May we believe all that God's word teaches, obey all that it commands, trust in all that it promises, and and revere all that it reveals. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Okay. Here's a question I would ask of you. What is... What is the most important commandment? Now, I gave it away. I probably should have asked that question before we read the text. But assuming you weren't paying attention, what is the greatest or the most important commandment? Of all the rules the Bible gives, how would you answer that? Without knowing the answer, which one would you say is number one? Now, again, you might already know or you might intuit from what Jesus says here. But here's something to consider. How do you think... How do you think the typical secular person in our culture would answer from what they see and hear from the Christians they're familiar with? How do you think they would answer? These people, this really matters to them. This must be the most important thing because it's what they talk about the most. How does the way we live answer the question for those who do not believe? Maybe I should ask this question. Are the commandments important? I mean, that may be a more relevant question to our cultural moment, you know? Because the first thing we learn here is that Jesus is not a moral relativist. He doesn't answer the question from the scribes by saying, law, don't worry about law. There's no law. There are no rules. Just be true to yourself. That's what matters most. No, he acknowledges that there is indeed moral accountability. Notice he grounds the discussion of morality in the the reality of God. 
So they ask which commandment is the greatest, and Jesus says, well, first we have to talk about who God is. Look at that. He says, quoting Deuteronomy, God is one. That's where he begins, and that's where any discussion of morality, even in our culture, begins. If there is no God, then there is no objective standard of good and evil and right and wrong. It would be illogical to say there's no such thing as truth because there is no such thing as God. There's no such thing as transcendent truth or right and wrong. And then be outraged by any number of sins, including rape or murder or genocide. I mean, without God... There is only moral anarchy, but if there is a creator, then there is design. And if there is design, then there is intent. And if there is intent, then there is such a thing as morality. And if there is morality, then there is moral accountability. And Jesus here is saying, the law matters. I mean, that, that, the message of Christianity is not that the law is irrelevant. The gospel doesn't make the law irrelevant. It doesn't make obedience optional. It makes obedience possible. And so we should not be more relativists either. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, which is this beautiful, this beautiful treatise of the gospel. It's theological in nature, but towards chapter 6, Paul says, all of the things that I've been writing to you, really boil down to this. He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. Do you see that? I mean, the, the, the trick of the gospel is not just that it makes people obedient, but it actually unlocks, unlocks the true center for, like you can not just be obedient because you're afraid or be obedient because you've learned how to follow the rules. You can be obedient willingly from the heart, from the deepest places of your life. That's what Jesus intends for us to be. People who are able to obey God from the deepest, most sincere, most authentic places of our lives. But if we're going to be people who are like that, if we're going to be people who learn how to obey the law from the heart, and who keep this commandment that he gives to us here, then there is a conceptual issue, and a practical issue, and a theological issue, and an experiential issue that all have to converge to make that possible. That sounds like a lot. It's not. We'll get through it quick. Conceptual issue, and a practical one, and a theological one, and an experiential one, and you'll see those are the four points of the outline that I've given you. So let's go through the text, looking at it from that perspective first, conceptually. You have to see, if you're going to be a person who learns and, and becomes a person able to obey this command and all the other commands from the heart, you have to see that law and love are not competing factors. Conceptually, this is the first piece. That the law is, in fact, love. That the whole law, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, is summed up and fulfilled in one word, love. And so, we see here, you shall love the Lord your God. That's the first commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second commandment. God is not solitary. He is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means the heart of all reality is love. We are made in his image, which means that we were made to love and to be loved. We were made for relationships. The fish is made for the water, and the bird is made for the air. And I was trying to think of some magical creature and what they were made for. I should have asked Tony. He would have had a ready-made answer probably. But the way all things have a certain habitat that they are made for, we are made for love. Love is our natural habitat, and that is what this text is pointing to. But specifically, look there, it says love and not sacrifices. The scribe, in his response to Jesus here, he says love is better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, verse 33 there. And throughout the scripture, God says, I desire mercy. That's what I want, mercy, not 
mere sacrifice. Here, the scribe knows that love is better, that it is more. That's really what the word means, that, 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 that it's something more than mere sacrifices. So what does, what does that mean exactly? Well, in the Hosea passage where God first says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which is quoted numerous times in the Gospels, the problem is that the people's love, the prophet says, was like the dew in the morning. It's there, but then in the next moment, as soon as the heat gets turned up, it's gone. It did not last. And these people, they still did religious things. They would obey the rules, and they would make the sacrifices and do all of this stuff, but their heart wasn't in it. There was no love. It was mere formality. And that's what the prophet is saying. God is saying the law without love is no good. God does not want people who... Obey him. He wants people who, who love the sound of his voice. I mean, you can obey God because you're afraid and you're trying to stay on his good side. You can obey him because you're trying to put him in your debt. Whatever the case might be, that's not nearly enough. This text shows us, alongside of everything else the Bible reveals to us, that God wants your want to. What God really wants is your want to. He wants your heart, your love, your loyalty. The most important command is not obey God, it is love God. And what we have to see is that law and love don't work against one another. You don't have to choose between the, obeying the rules and loving people. Here's an important thing to remember. If the rules get in the way of loving God or loving people, then there's something wrong with your understanding of the rules. How many times do you see this in Jesus' ministry and teaching? I was thinking, we were talking about this text, uh, I forget who, who it was, but uh, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, there was, a, uh, there was a rule. So the rule was the Sabbath, right? No, you know, and on that day, you didn't do work. And then there was the man. And so it's this confrontation in Mark chapter 3 where, again, it's the religious leaders coming after Jesus. And there's, it's on the Sabbath day. There's the rule. And then there's this man who has this, the hand that doesn't work and he needed help. And the religious leaders were so focused on the rules that they missed the man. That's what you learn as you read that text. But Jesus knew that the law and love are never at odds. You, you do not refuse to love for the sake of the law. And if it feels like you're faced with a choice between the law and love, then you need to rethink your understanding of the law. Because Jesus in that story, he healed that man. And he didn't break the Sabbath command to do it. He fulfilled the Sabbath in doing it. Their problem was they misunderstood the whole Sabbath command because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what he goes on to say. In other words, the Sabbath was not the big deal. It was to those religious people, but not to the creator and not to the giver of the law. The Sabbath was not the big deal. People are the big deal. And the Sabbath rules are there for the sake of our own humanity to keep us from seeking to become godlike in our aspirations in all the wrong ways. The Sabbath rules teach us also to respect the humanity of others. They help us love and so the law is a manual for love, which means if you obey all the rules, even the smallest ones, but you're arrogant and you're self-righteous about it, then it doesn't count. If you're the most committed person you know, but you're not gentle and patient towards people who struggle, you're spiritually nothing. If you have perfect church attendance, 
I'd be proud of you. But if you have that but not love, if you have good theology but have not love, if you are not like all the bad people but you have not love, you know where I'm going. You gain nothing. The law is love. Conceptually, law and love are not competing forces. They're not working against one another. But secondly, practically, the practical issue is Love here then means both love for God and love for neighbor. There are two commandments that are actually one. Do you see that, that they asked Jesus for the greatest commandment? The one that is the most important, the single commandment, that is the one that is distinguished from all the other? Now, when somebody asks you who is the greatest of all time, you can't give two answers. That doesn't answer the question, right? The, question, the whole question is designed, tell me who is the single greatest of all time. These people, they want one commandment that is more important than all the rest. But Jesus' Jesus's answer is that there actually, there's not one, there are two. And the first is love God. Look there with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, which we read. But then he says there's a second. And that's the surprise. He says the second is love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19, 18. But then notice how he put it. If you notice there, verse 31, he says... There is no other commandment greater than these. It's a fascinating statement. There is no other commandment. I looked it up just in case. That's a singular noun. There is no one single commandment that is greater than these two, plural. Isn't that interesting? Two commandments, but they are so tightly connected to one another that they're actually one single command, which means... You cannot obey the first without also obeying the second. It also means that the power to obey the second comes from first obeying the first. They are inseparable, these two. Two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. If you fail at one, then you fail at both. That is what Jesus is saying. If you love God, you will love other people. But the degree to which you love God also is the degree to which you'll love others. As you grow in love for God, guess what? You will also be growing in your love for other people. Or, as Dorothy Day hauntingly said, provocatively said, she said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Now, here's the way John said it. In his straightforward way, John, John didn't mess around, guys. He said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, John, John tends to deal in absolutes. He can be a little bit hard to take sometimes, but it stands on its face, I think. If you do not love God, you will never love others because we are loved into love. That is, loving God and being loved by God is the power for our love for one another. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's dive into this just a little bit more, okay? So let's look at the first and greatest command. The first great command is not love God, but only a little. Love God but in moderation. It's not, love God, but let's not get carried away. <laughs> What's he say? Look there. Love the Lord your... What is the command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. 
Can somebody count how many alls? Four alls with everything. Actually, it says, look there, it says God is one. That's where Jesus starts. God is a complete whole, so the only way to love him is with your whole self. God is not pulled in different directions, so neither should we be in our love for him. Our love for God cannot be compartmentalized. It can't be just one small part of a very big and busy life. It requires all of us, our whole self, our whole life, all the different parts integrated into this into this one work of becoming people who love God above all else with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind, with our whole strength. I have four kids. This may be a little self-indulgent, so forgive me, but I was thinking about it this way this week. This helped me. I have four kids. Canaan, he is, uh, he is the oldest. He's 22, and he's getting married in 41 days. We have a countdown on our phones. He's a CrossFit coach at Just Move. Uh, if you know him, he is motivated and disciplined. I, he annoys me. He won't eat bad food with me. He's no fun at all. There is this, there, and I don't know where it came from, because when he was 13, he was not this way at all. We prayed him into this. His mama prayed him into this, I think. But there is this motivated core to him that is just like impressive I mean he is passionate he feels deeply about everything all the things like he's just and that see that that sense of that motivational hard-working passionate feeling deeply that's the word heart love him with your whole heart it refers to your personal center to the motivational core of your life the spring for all of your feelings and decisions. Love God with all of your heart, Jesus says. And then there's Isaac. He's my second child. He's 20. He's a sophomore at FSU, and he's brilliant. Ask Gigi Savant. She'll tell you. He's brilliant. I mean, he always has been. When he was little, he read 10 books a week. We ran out of books. There were no more books. He, and then we sent him to school because we homeschooled him. We realized, yeah, he's, he's, we can't do this. He's a thinker. His, his reasoning, his ability to argue his opinions is just stunning. I mean, good luck trying to get him to change his mind. It's not going to happen. He's a criminology major on his way to law school. And that's what this word mind means. The way you think about the world, the way, the way you conceptual conceptually hold things and think about them. Love God with your whole mind, it says. And then come my girls, Abby, she's 18. She's a high school senior. She is artistic and deep. She's her own person with her own style and vibe. She knows who she is and who she wants to be, and it's just beautiful. She paints, and she does art. She decorates. She fills our house with beauty, and I'm so glad for all of that. And that is the word soul. It says love him with all of your soul. That's the word psyche, with your depths, with the unique you that nobody else can be, the way that God has uniquely made you, the unique beauty that you bring into the world. That's that word soul. And then, and then there's Sarah, and she's the youngest. She's 15, about to be 16. Pray for us. Within 12 hours of being born, I'm not kidding, within 12 hours, fourth time around, within 12 hours, Ashley looked at me and said, Something's wrong with her. She's different than the rest of all of the kids. And she is. 
She is a force to be reckoned with. We thought we were going to have eight children until we had her. And they were like, nope, we're good. She's like a superhero. She has this incredible capacity for good and an incredible capacity for evil. But I mean, she's nonstop. You mess with her on the basketball court, watch out. She's coming for you. She will wear you out. You won't outwork her. You won't outlove her. And that's that word strength. It means ability with your force, energy. Love God with your whole strength. Now, can you imagine the very best of all four of my kids in one integrated whole person aimed exclusively at the Lord? Come on, somebody. We, that is what we've been made for. We were made to love God like that. That's how we're built. And that's not all, because there's a second great command. That's just the first one. Jesus says, yeah, but there's something else I've got to talk to you about. Then also, the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you look close enough, you'll find uh, that at the center of your life is love, is love for yourself. You are driven in most things by self-concern. But the command here is to make the measure of yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. Make the measure of your self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. In other words, seek for other people the same things you seek for yourself and seek them in the same way with the same zeal and energy and creativity and endurance. Put your happiness in the happiness of others. So let me go back to my kids for just a minute because parenting has taught me this lesson more than any other. We, uh, not anymore, and I do miss it, and, I'm, and I'm, this is the part of grandparenting that I'm really excited about too. We used to read to our kids before bedtime. And all of them, particularly when they were younger, uh, you know, in four, five, six, that age, they all had a favorite book. And uh, I don't know if you've had this, but in our, in our family, when, when our kids decided they had a favorite book, then they wanted to read that book every night. Anybody else have this experience? Yeah, thank you, Gigi. Like, same book every night. So Sarah was the last kid. You get kind of tired by the time you've had a lot, of, you know, like, like when I, my fourth time in T-ball, I like had an existential crisis. I was like, what am I doing with my life? Like I've been coaching T-ball for 15 years. This is ridiculous. What like, this can't keep going. And so it kind of happens that way. But with Sarah, she had this book. So we have hundreds of books in our house, but there's this one book. She loved this book so much. And it was not a good book. I mean, it was a terrible book, but she loved it. And she wanted to read it every night, and I would beg her, can we please, like every night, can we please read something else? I mean, I hated this book. I dreaded it every night. The book mysteriously went missing for a few months at one point because I hid it from her. And, uh, but we homeschooled her too, and so I went away to work one day and came home, and she came out one night, ah, with the book. I was like, great, yay, the book. And so we were right back to every night. And like I said with Sarah, you're not going to win. You might as well just do it, give up. So we would read, and it felt like it took three hours. But she would smile and giggle every time we'd read our way through this book. And I, I remember one night we had finally, I mean, literally, I would like, oh, it's paid. We're two more I would count down to the end of the book, and we finally made it to the end of the book. And Abby walked into the bedroom and saw what we were reading, and she said, oh, I love that book. Daddy, would you read that book to me next? I mean, what do you do? How are you going to survive going on 23 years of parenting moments like that? You have to learn to put your happiness in their happiness. It's the only way to make it. We were made to love others with the same passion, 
and energy and constancy that we naturally love ourselves. And I don't know how God will teach you that lesson, but he used my kids to teach me. But it's how we're built. Now, sin makes this terribly hard. You can immediately feel, because no one, no one loves God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, right? Nobody truly loves others with the same passion and energy and constancy that they love themselves. But it is what God intends. And that leads to the third thing. Third, theologically, the order, the order of these two commands matter. Yes, the two commands together are a single command, but there, but there is an order, and the first has to be first. There's actually two Greek words here. The first is the word protos, which you know how that's applied in our own language. It means first or most important. That's verses 20 and 29. But then there's a second word, and the second word is mega, which means the biggest or the greatest. And the two together make up the great. They ask, what is the protos command? What is the first commandment? Jesus says, well, there is a first, but there also is a second, and the two together make up the mega, the greatest command. And so there is... The mega, but still the one has to come before the other. There's the protos also, okay? Sorry to geek out on you there for a minute, but here's what that means. Our problem isn't that we don't love. It's that our loves are disordered. Our problem is that we love less important things more than we should, and we love the more important things less than we should. And the unhappiness and the disorder of our lives is caused by the disorder of our loves. So you should love your work. You should, and I would hope that for you. But you should not love your work more than you love your family. If you do, then something's out of order and you will ruin your family. In the same way, you will not love your family the way you're supposed to until you love God more than you love them. So love your neighbor, yes, it's the great commandment, but love God first. Love the first thing first, otherwise you make an idol out of whatever you try to love. You make an idol out of your family or your spouse or your kids or your friends, and you'll fail to love them as you should because you've tried to make them too important than they should be. If you love anything more than God, you harm yourself, you harm the object of your love, you harm the world around you in the doing of that. Let me give you just a couple examples before we come really to a close here. And I'm stealing from Tim Keller here, I should say, okay? So let's, if your children, let's say, because I've talked about my kids a lot this morning, so if your children and not God are the great love of your life, if you make your kids an idol, then you will inevitably begin to rest your need for significance and security in them. You will begin to need them too much for, or you will need them to succeed and be happy and love you in return too much. You will begin to act in ways that will either drive them away because of this great need you have or crush them under the weight of your expectations and need. You'll ruin your relationship with them because they've become too important. You ruin the very thing you love by loving them too much and not loving God enough in proportion. Or... Another example, if your friends and not God are the great love of your life, if you make your friends into an idol, you will inevitably become codependent. And then you won't be able to risk the relationship to confront their sin. And that's not being a good friend. That's just loving yourself, not loving that other person. Or you'll become so clingy and needy and demanding that, again, 
the friendship will kind of crumble under the weight of expectations. They'll never live up to your expectations. And the problem in both of these scenarios is not that you love your kids or your friends too much. It's that you love God too little in relationship to them. Because when you love God as you should, you can begin to love other people, not as an ultimate source of happiness, but as good gifts from God. Miroslav Volf said, attachment to God amplifies and deepens our enjoyment of the world. And so the lesson is this, don't love other people less. Don't hear me say you need to love your kids less or you need to love your work less. Don't love other people less. Learn to love God more. And your love for them will be more balanced and you'll find more satisfaction. And you do this through repentance and faith. You look for, you look for the epi emotions that you have where are you not just sad but devastated when something is wrong in the relationship? Or where are you not just angry, but you become infuriated and unforgiving because of something happens? These are signs that a particular relationship has become too important. And you have to say, you have to identify that, and then you say, ugh, you know, this has started to matter too much. It's become too important. This thing, it, it feels like, because I have all of these raging emotions here, it feels like, it's taking the place of God in my life. And then you work to disentangle your heart and to redirect your love towards God and to learn to be okay in him and to find your happiness in him and to find love and acceptance that you're missing or that's threatened in the relationship in him. And by loving him most, you can begin to love others better. You see that? You won't overprotect. You won't overexpect. You begin to truly enjoy all the people in your life far more. And so theologically, there is a great command, it's actually two, but there's also an order, there's a first, and the first has to remain first, but lastly then. So the last thing is there's an experiential issue too, and experientially, as I've already said, you need to be loved into loving. Hurt people hurt people. Loving, love people are loving, and John says it this way in his letters, he says, we love because God first loved us. And so Christianity, let's remember, is grace. God does not love us because we love him first. We love because he loved us first. Our love is the echo of his love for us. So the two commandments don't just tell us what we ought to do for God. They show us what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, I came not to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law, which means, yes, you and I, we have a perfect record of never loving God with our whole selves. But Jesus has a perfect record of loving God with his whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We have a perfect record of never loving others as we love ourselves, but Jesus has a perfect record of doing so. The miracle of the gospel is that God and Jesus put his happiness in our happiness. He counted himself nothing. He became a servant, Paul says, Philippians 2, and was obedient to the cross as an act of love for God first, and also love for you and me. He lived a perfect life of love. He gave himself up for us in love. There is no love like the love of God in Jesus. It is bread, the Bible says, that if you eat it, you will never hunger again. It is water that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. If you know his love experientially, not just theoretically, if you have his love in your heart, then you can need other people less and love them more. You can live full and overflowing in love for others, not empty and needing to be filled with their love. And it's a big difference between those two things. 
But that's only part of the good news because the gospel is not just the gospel, it's not just the cross, it is also the good news of the kingdom. Do you see how Jesus puts it to this man? He says in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? He's not in the kingdom. He's not far from the kingdom. And here's what this means. Dallas Willard, he said that the kingdom is the electricity of God. Now in the world, in Jesus, by faith, by faith, what you do when you believe is you plug your life into the power source. And when you do, can you imagine, like, can you imagine, it's hard for, like, can you imagine living in the rural Midwest whenever, and, and when electricity came to town and, and, your, and your house got hooked up to, can you imagine? Like, all the things that you couldn't do that all of a sudden you could do. Like, think about that. And when we believe, when we have faith in Jesus and we, we plug our, our hearts and our lives into the power source, then what happens is it's all kinds of things that were not possible before now become possible. Presumably, this scribe had the right answers, but he did not have yet the power of God surging in his life. And it's a real danger. It's a danger for all of us. That we could have the answers, but not the experiential knowing. And the power of God, described in this one word, kingdom, is the person of Jesus. He is the one who lived a life of perfect love, who gave himself up for us in love, who put his happiness in our happiness, and he now, by the Spirit, lives in us. Jesus died, he was raised, he ascended into heaven, and from heaven he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus living in us. In other words, it's, the, it's his love that heals the world. He is the medical genius. We are the doctors, ourselves being cured by the medicine and then giving it to those who need it. It's his song. He is the musical genius. We are the musicians who are captivated by his composition, but we go out performing it for the whole world. Don't get this wrong. It's his love, not ours. But the Apostle Paul describes God's Love being poured, God pouring his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, chapter 5. And then that love that's been poured into us overflowing to others because the finite cannot contain the infinite. And the kingdom, that word kingdom, signals the access that is now ours in Jesus to that kind of love. That we have access to all of that love that existed from eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the ministry and the message of Jesus. The kingdom has come means you can powerfully experience God's love, first in you and then through you. And that is the key to obeying the law from the heart. It requires a supernaturally changed heart. And what can change a person to that degree? Only the love of God. Not mere doctrine. Not just the knowing of doctrine, of Sunday school answers, of catechism questions but the experiential knowing of his love through the, through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's like uh, William Cooper, who himself uh, struggled deeply with depression and struggled with the knowing of God's love. But here's how he put it. In he, describing his own conversion, he said, How long beneath the law I lay, in bondage and distress, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Listen to this. He says, then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Well, what made the change? He says, to see 
the law of Christ fulfilled, and to hear his pardoning voice, to know his love, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, and hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child in duty into choice. And so let's pray that God would do that work in us by the Spirit this morning. Can we pray? So, Father, as we get ready to sing a song in response to this, would you come as you've sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world so that through him our debts might be paid, that we might be reconciled to you? Would you, Father and Son, send the Spirit in a new way to us, your people, as we're gathered here in your presence this morning? Would you send him that we might know your love, not merely know it with our, with our heads in a theoretical sense, but know it with our hearts from the deep places. And that's a work that only you can do. And so we say, Holy Spirit, here we are. Would you go to work in us that we might truly come to know your love and in knowing your love that we might be people who are supernaturally changed into the kind of people who are not intimidated by anything we read here, but who more and more, as time goes on, increasingly find ourselves giving more and more of our hearts and more and more of our minds and more and more of our souls and more and more of our strength to loving you and who find ourselves truly loving our neighbor with all of the passion and intention and endurance with which we currently love ourselves, that we might be people bearing fruit for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to Jesus' words again. He said to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so he sends us into the world on a mission of love. Uh, this world desperately needs to know the love of God in Christ through words and welcome from God's people. So go on that mission, knowing though that you go having been loved by the Father. Uh, not, you're not going to earn anything. You're not going to win his heart. His heart is yours in Jesus. That's what these words of benediction mean. So receive these words of benediction and may they propel you and I, all of us into a life of love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.